student once brought to the philosopher Hegel a passage of the philosopher's writings and asked for an interpretation. And Hegel looked over it and he replied, when that passage was written, there were two who knew its meaning, God and myself. Now, alas, there is but one, and that one is God. In today's passage from Micah, God seems to be the only one who is remembering for the Israelites. It's an odd courtroom that Micah imagines for us. Israel is the defendant, and it seems that God is both plaintiff and judge. So God on the witness stand testifies about what God has done for Israel, a story that they seem to have forgotten. You can hear the action verbs, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, all these other things, so that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Someone quipped, it's easy enough to have a clear conscience. All it takes is a fuzzy memory. And I wonder if it was a fuzzy memory that challenged the Israelites. Or it may have been laziness or distraction or misunderstanding. We can make excuses for them, just as we like to do for ourselves. But God is ready for them to remember their purpose. Remember their story, remember the beginning of their relationship, their covenant, and what it means for them now. It had been several generations when the Israelites and God had settled on this covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's it, the agreement. I will be your God and you will be my people. The people had agreed then, the Israelites, that they would not be any other God's people. They would be Yahweh's people, this God. And God said, this is all I require of you. I'll do my part, and you do yours. And so we see that throughout the Hebrew Bible, that whenever the people stray, God always upholds the divine end of the covenant. God is always available always ready to renew that covenant again and again. So here again, the Israelites have forgotten. They had gotten seduced by the gods of neighboring peoples who seemed to offer more in the way of reward than their own. And God is calling them back. And God calls them back through remembering, reminding them about their story of salvation. Remember yours? What has God done for you? Think. What are your, the saving acts that you have experienced in your own life? God wants to be our God. Are we living like God's people? Like a teacher reminding a student to Look at me when I'm talking to you. 
Jesus wants to dislodge us from our distractions and bring our eyes back round to God. This list at the beginning of Matthew 5, as we heard, is called the Beatitudes, another word for blessings. And it's enough to blast us out of our comfort zones. I have my own fuzzy memories. One of them is from my childhood, and it's either a poster or it was a book cover or something. And it was um, the bee attitudes, and it had this cute little bee buzzing around with a smile on its face. The bee attitudes. So obviously these were the ways to be happy. There are some Bible scholars who see these statements as attitudes. Attitudes that when we have them, we will be fulfilling God's purposes for us. Others see them as promises of what will come in the next era, after Christ comes again and when God then reclaims control. Whether it's in this life or the next, the statements express reward for Micah-like actions of compassionate justice, steadfast love, and humility. So again, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, not just for those who have died, but who mourn for the unhappy ways of the world. Blessed are the mild ones, the patient ones. For each of the blessings, there is a reward. And then the last verse, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It doesn't say your reward is great on earth. Man, you know, we like our rewards right? This is yesterday's mail. Does your credit card give back to missions? I can get a credit card with rewards. We shop at Kroger, so our church gets rewards. We do things for other people, not only because it makes them feel good, but it makes us feel good too. One morning, Marion Gilbert opened the door to get her newspaper, and she was surprised to find a strange little dog with the paper in its mouth. And she said, delighted with this unexpected delivery service, I fed him some treats. And the following morning then, she was horrified to see the same dog sitting in front of their door, wagging his tail, surrounded by eight newspapers. (laughs) She spent the rest of the morning returning the papers to their owners. The dog wanted treats, wanted a reward. Well, spiritual rewards are not as crunchy as milk bones. They're intangible. We can't touch them often. Comfort. Eyes that see in a new way. Mercy. We can't touch these things. And yet, these are the rewards of God. Back to Micah's courtroom, when God is reminding the Israelites what God has done for them, they seem to acknowledge this truth. And so they begin to wonder what they can do 
to find the fulfillment that they've been seeking elsewhere. Oops. Okay, God, so what can we do to get back in your good graces? Shall we bring calves to be slaughtered on your altar? Shall we bring hundreds of rams? Would 10,000 rivers of oil make us even? Or, Or maybe you want me to offer my firstborn child on the altar as a sacrifice. What do you require for the reward of reconciliation with you? Victor Borga told about a couple going on vacation, standing in line, waiting to check their bags at the airline counter. And the husband said to the wife, I wish we had brought the piano. And the wife said, why? We've got 16 bags already. And the husband said, yes, I know, but the tickets are on the piano. The Israelites didn't need the whole piano. They just needed the tickets lying on top. God didn't want animal sacrifices or sacrifices of oil that was precious for making their bread. God didn't want the sacrifice of their firstborn children. Micah tells them what their tickets are. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of us, Calvary Baptist? To make this beautiful building into a museum? To magnify God through music? To show up on Sundays? To eat together? What does the Lord require of us? And how much of what we do does the Lord require of us? In December, late December of 1890, a snowstorm was beginning when several men from Roanoke Baptist Church met and agreed that Roanoke needed a second Baptist church and they wanted to help start it. That was the conception of this church today. Does Roanoke still need this Baptist church? If we exist for selfish reasons, what's the answer? Come on, people. If we exist to take care of ourselves, does Roanoke need this church? No, no, of course not. If we exist for ourselves if we exist just to say that we're surviving, that, oh, yes, we're a part of that church that has such a wonderful heritage, but if we're not doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God, I'm not sure Roanoke needs this church. In 1990, about 100 years after this congregation was founded, The church, this church, adopted a purpose statement. I want to read it to you. Listen for any requirements related to Micah or to the Beatitudes in Matthew. Purpose statement, 
August 1990, called by God to be a priesthood of believers with Jesus Christ as our example, we, as Calvary Baptist Church, believe our purpose is to glorify God in all that we do. To fulfill our calling, we shall minister in Christ's name to our church family, the neighborhood of our church building, the neighborhoods in which we live, and the greater world that our lives touch. We strive to achieve our purpose through thought-provoking preaching, sorry, (laughs) through reverent worship, uplifting music, vital Christian education which nurtures mind and spirit, caring for those in need, and leading others to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Through these ministries and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we shall develop Christians who enthusiastically and joyfully commit their lives and gifts in service to Christ. It's not a bad statement, is it? It's good to go back and look at those things, and it's good to re-examine our purposes every now and then, because sometimes our purposes change. We think about the advent of cell phones. The telephone companies had to change, right? The purposes of a newly committed couple change when a couple has children. And like people, churches find it both challenging and healthy to examine our purposes, to see whether we're on the track God intends for us and whether we're committed to it as well. Someone said that Christians without goals are a little like Alice in Alice in Wonderland. There was a conversation between Alice and the Cheshire Cat, and Alice asked, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat replies, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. I don't much care where, said Alice. And the cat responded, then it doesn't matter which way you go. On the door of University Christian Church in New York in the 1963, a sign was posted on the door. It said, gone out of business, didn't know what our business was. Are we doing justice? Contributing to the balance of things in our neighborhood and our society? Do we love God's kindness and mercy enough to show it sacrificially? Are we walking humbly with God, or are we walking pridefully with God? Do we seek to be pure of heart, merciful, righteous? The scriptures give us many principles. We could get overwhelmed by all of the things that we quote-unquote should do, and that could paralyze us. But if we look for maybe that one thing, that one thing that we could do that would be different, that might adjust to God's track for us personally 
and corporately as a church. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of us? When our purposes become God's purposes, I think that's when we'll be fulfilling the requirements. And along with that, we'll find reward by an infusion of God's blessings. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we seek you most of all. We seek understanding. We seek wisdom and discernment. We seek our purpose. And we seek courage to follow you wherever you want us to go. We pray, O God, that we would be enthusiastic and joyfully committed to living in service to Christ. Help us to know how to do that well according to the special gifts that you have given to us. We thank you, God, for our gifts. We thank you for our heritage. And we thank you for the hope for the future, knowing that you will be walking with us and guiding us and comforting us and strengthening us with every step. In your name we ask these things. Amen.